Hey, George Cedarquist here, co-host of Opera Box Score. I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. As we get ready for season six of the OBS launching September 14, we're asking for a few bucks to help keep the show going. Your donations help us bring you the best interviews. Like Lydia Yankovskaya, Matthew Polanzani, uh, like Brenda Ray, like all of the amazing moms we have on the Mother's Day episode. And it helps us bring hot takes from all over opera land. Since there's so much live performance going on right now. We're bustling. We're busy. Hey, look, five bucks buys an ad on Facebook. Ten bucks pays for a month on SoundCloud or Squarespace where you can see my dreadful web design skills. And look, 20 bucks could get... Oliver, what? Uh, a friend. <laughs> Go to operaboxscore.com slash donate to help season six be the hottest, funniest, and bestest season yet. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period, from the Ravenswood studio on the north side of Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, tonight, or whenever you're listening, we go inside the huddle with baritone Daniel Belcher to talk about singing in these surreal times, about a new online vocal program that he's part of, and we'll ask him When was the last time he watched sports on TV? Two-minute drill. Got some advice on how to show appreciation in the opera house, if you're in an opera house during the pandemic. This is for Oliver, not even on the show tonight. The U.S. Open, I think it kicked off today in Flushing Meadows, New York. Anybody watching? Who's ready? I am not watching today, but I will be watching a little bit later this week. Although I do lean on Oliver and you to be my knowledge base on this, because I am fair weather at best when it comes to, uh, to tennis. I've really grown to love tennis. Wimbledon, for me, is one of the highlights of the sporting calendar. Crushed, of course, that that was canceled earlier this summer. I've been teaching the kiddos tennis this uh, past few months, and I'm going to sit down with them and see if I can get it on terrestrial television. That's so A- cute. Ashley, what else is in your sports world? Um, go Bucks, go Sox, go every single team in the WNBA. I can't believe I'm saying this about professional sports, but let the women do the work. Have you seen their activism? It's amazing. All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Grammy award-winning baritone Daniel Belcher has performed in many of the world's music capitals, including Paris, London, New York, San Francisco, Berlin, Stuttgart, Amsterdam, Geneva, Madrid, Toronto, Montreal, Tokyo, Seoul, and Houston. With a repertoire of more than 80 roles, Belcher has championed roles from the Baroque to those composed expressly for him. Daniel Belcher, welcome to the show tonight. Oh, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks. And uh, you go by Danny as well? Yeah, call me Danny. Absolutely. Fantastic. It is so great. Sorry. Hang on a second. This is, we're recording on Zoom. Is this like Zoom bombing? There's somebody who also like just showed up on Zoom. What is this? Who's that guy? Who 
I, he looks familiar. George, do you remember? Oh my God. It's, is that a ghost? Thomas? It is, it's the ghost of Tobias yeah, yeah. Wright. Oh, that's they, it. Okay. okay. They say any press is good press, but did you really have to say Zoom bombing, George? <laughs> you know, I was at a meeting of a uh, the alderman in my ward here in Chicago, and somebody Zoom bombed the alderman's, uh, like, big address to the ward where we were watching it and this guy pops out and he's like hey is this algebra class and then he showed some footage of something which is uh not well, algebra it's, de- it's definitely illegal in alabama i'll tell you that sweet danny well, anyways, thanks good to see you guys <laughs> it's great to see you danny what's it been like in this pandemic as an opera artist give me a highlight give me a low light Ooh, um, there's actually a lot of both. And I loved it when Matthew um, gave a shout out to Lydia. Um, I was working with her at Minnesota Opera on a world premiere, uh, Edward Tulane, um, when we were getting ready to go to our final room run through. And that night they said, we'll all be going home the next day. So we, uh, we kind of, um, my last drink uh, or and dinner with someone was actually with uh, Lydia and we were all raising a glass to the next time we'd be able to be together and performing. Um, so I just love that shout out. Uh, she's a remarkable artist and human being. Um, talk me talk me through the moment in that room when that announcement was made. I mean, we all saw this tidal wave coming. There you are, poised to make art. That goes down. What are people feeling? It was, it was rather surreal because, you know, we would all be back in the hotel, um, you know, watching everything that's going on and, and talking with friends in Europe. And uh, I had a former presenter friend uh, that I worked with in Tokyo, who actually lived in the Wuhan province and, and everyone and Italian friends that were saying, guys, this, this is going down. This is, this is far more real than you guys on the other side of the water. Are, are making this appear. And boy, were they right. Um, it, it was, it was fascinating because we, we all went to rehearsal that night and we knew the company was really trying to forge ahead and was trying to make it through our production. Uh, two hours before our room run, uh, we, we essentially got shut down by the city and the city government uh, because of the theater. And so it was literally the first time the entire team for the production was assembling. So finally we had the librettist, the composer, the entire design team, all the production staff, was, all the chairs were out and everyone was ready to go. And um, Ryan gets up and gives a speech and says, we're going to reconvene on this project in hopefully a couple of years. And it was kind of like Godspeed and let's, uh, Let's collectively hang in there. And so, yeah, there were a few tears shed, but I have to say the resolve from everyone was was really quite strong. And then the pang of uncertainty that kind of washed across the room as we were all looking at, you know, summer work, fall work, um, contracts that were we were holding on to, um, new projects that were in development, new works. And then it's kind of one after another, we're slowly being ticked off of the... <laughs> off of the charts for this year and either rescheduled or kind of left in limbo. We knew this was gonna be a lot longer um, than we saw in that moment. And so it, I have to say the, the pain was really palpable, but I was lucky that we could share it collectively. Meanwhile, my wife was in Florida, Kathleen, um, and she was directing in rehearsals to direct a Rigoletto with for Florida Grand. And they still weren't making decisions. And um, 
So theirs was shut down a few days after ours. And, you know, kind of like everyone in the industry was always remaining hopeful, like, well, when can we get going again? When can we get going again? Well, now we know where we are. (laughs) So uh, I remain hopeful. I still have a couple things on the books for this year. Um, But uh, you take one day at a time. And every day I have to say, I go to my email box with a little hesitation, not knowing what I'm going to read and or open. and. yeah, but uh, it's, I, I have to say it's definitely been a shared experience within the industry and one that I realize how close this family of mine is that exists in this music community. And um, whether, it's, whether it's the performers, whether it's the, company, uh, the companies uh, administratively, whether it's the patrons, and um, I just feel like we're all, we really are going through this together and it's, it's not easy. It's really not easy. Um, Danny, it's Toby Wright. Thanks again for being on the show. Of course, man. You know, you mentioned the the opera family and thank you very much for now being a part of the opera box score family. Um, maybe we'll put you in the hall of fame later. Um, you know, a lot of singers right now are searching for an identity, searching for a purpose, searching for work. Um, as a singer who's, you know, constantly booked, um, is in demand, but also has another passion. Um, I'd be curious to know a little bit about what you're doing with your time right now. Um, I'll let you talk a little bit, but one of your passions is education. Um, and is this a happy accident or is this all part of your plan as a singer for world domination to also be a great teacher? Uh, it's absolute domination. Um, there we go. Good. And, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm just kind of hanging on by my fingernails daily to to see how I do, but um, uh, I haven't hurt anyone yet. So, you know, small victory. <laughs> you uh, say you haven't hurt anyone yet. Yeah, no one's bled. No singer has bled yet. So, you so, know. So um, just talk a little bit. I'm just going to fill in the audience. You recently announced, recruited for, um, and launched a diploma program at William Jewell, along with your wife, Kathleen Belcher. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, what that's been like um, and, and what it was like starting a program from scratch during a pandemic? Uh, yeah, it was... Um, you know, we were collectively very excited. And I went to school at William Jewell College. It's a small liberal arts college in Kansas City, uh, Liberty, Missouri, um, and happens to uh, be the curator of one of the great art series in the world called the Herman Jewell series. And in many ways, that's kind of how I was exposed to classical music when I was uh, a wee lad. Um, And we started talking about 18 months ago about what we could create. And I said, I didn't really feel like what I could do or what I had to say would would fill in kind of the normal, uh, just undergrad programming. And they said, well, what would you like to do? So Kathleen and I were collectively going, we, you know, when I'd sing at a company and I work often with young artist programs. Um, and I was asking not only the artists, but the companies, what's missing? What do you feel is kind of this bridge of, you know, you develop an artist and then they're like, what do I do now? How do I get auditions? Once, once I get to a certain level of a young artist program, whether it's a pay to sing or whether it's, you know, one of the summer festivals, how do I get to the next step? So we, we started crafting a program and God bless the school, they were 110% behind it. Um, it essentially just focuses merely on performing. It's two voice lessons a week, coachings, one-on-one acting classes uh, that Kathleen uh, does. It's all essentially one-on-one and then performance seminars. And these seminars, this was what a lot of kids were saying was, one, if I get an audition, 
it's like five minutes and there's 700 of us auditioning for 24 spots in the summer festival. So we thought, well, what if we bring the auditions to you? And they're not just auditions, but it's you getting a chance to really know this person within the industry and them getting to know you. So in the fall is Greg Carpenter from Opera Colorado, um, Gabe Pricer from Opera Orlando, um, Brad Trexel from Lyric Opera of Kansas City. Uh, oh gosh, here I am, this is terrible. Uh, uh, Garnet Bruce from Opera San Antonio, Roberto Kalb, who's coming from Opera Theater St. Louis, and they'll come in for three-day residencies. And the kids will each have, the artists, I should say kids, um, uh, the artists will each have 30 minutes to sing through this stuff, 30 minutes to go over the materials, where this person sees them going, a public masterclass, and then a Q&A. So, and it's all spread out over two, two days, so that when they leave, when the artists leave after two years, they will have developed, or at least initiated 20 relationships within the industry. Um, there's one goal is that we're able to put them into a young artist program when they leave. Not kind of, we, we can't go from there. Uh, if we can put them directly into the career path, well then heck yes, absolutely. Also the final step that we added was what do we do after they're done with the program? And this is modeled on the Sullivan Foundation, which um, years ago I was lucky enough to get a grant from. And uh, I'm not sure if your listeners know, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful foundation in New York. You audition for it, there's initial prize money, but what they do that no one else does are five years of career role preparation grants. So into the JUUL program, we've woven in three years where if the artist gets a contract with a young artist program, say it's their first Barbara Seville, even if it's to cover, then we send them money to continue lessons and coachings past wow. the program. So that we can, you know, really connect the dots into the industry. And um, we literally launched the, you, talk, you and I talked about it in February, but we launched the recruiting March 1st. And how did that go? What was the reception initially? What was the application process like? Well, -wise? the fact that I think I threw up in my mouth about 10 times. Um, <laughs> it was it was shockingly good and supportive. The program is purposefully small. We max out at each class at six artists. So when it's at maximum occupancy, it's uh, 12. That's, that's, that's as full as it gets. We want to keep it small uh, so that there's, we, there's a lot of individual attention. Um, and whether it's colleagues in the business or other teachers or singers we've sung with and Kathleen's directed, they started identifying singers of theirs that they thought would be a perfect fit. And by God, we got six plus having alternates. And, and we were able to fill it by May 1st and convince them to keep doing work at this time as opposed to taking just taking a year off or taking you know two years off. And um, what I think they're finding already after two weeks of work is that they're going to use these two years um, so that when they come out of the program, hopefully whatever, you know, whatever our industry looks like at that point, they're ready to jump in. And um, we're, we're really excited. And each of the artists here is passionate and um, at different stages, we have three post-baccalaureate, three post-graduate, three post-masters. So, so the, the levels of performing, the levels of uh, maybe vocal prowess, technical prowess um, are at different levels, but that's fine. That's where each of them are and we take them at their level. And so students committed knowing that this was gonna be an online experience. It's not online. We're actually 
um, we're face to face. Talk us through, talk us through some of the logistics of that. Yeah. So what the scheduling is rather tricky and we're actually, what we had planned and it's kind of the way the schedule worked out is that the opera is happening. Our first opera is literally in rehearsals right now and has been for a week. We're doing Cosi Fan Tutte, um, which is an ideal piece for six artists. And uh, we, we were like, how are we gonna make this work? We can't do it in the theater. Once we realized, you know, we're gonna have to distance, we could have 40 people in the theater. Then what do we do? Well, we decided to move it outdoors. And we have this wonderful acoustic, acoustically designed space on the campus here at William Jewell, which is kind of like a little Glyndebourne Garzington Hill. And um, it's called the Trotter Arts Plaza. And it literally has, you don't need mics. They, you can, they sound like cannons from the space. And so we're, we are rehearsing indoors. All of the staging is socially distant. They all rehearse in masks. Um, we're reducing the orchestra to a double string quartet. And um, we're, uh, we're doing the best we can. Um, all the, the voice lessons are in 30 minute increments so that the other 30 minutes per hour can air out the room. Uh, we all leave uh, so that the air can recirculate in the building. So that's where I say, you know, scheduling wise, it's getting a little tricky because I like today I taught for seven hours, but only three and a half of those were actually teaching. Um, we do have one guest artist. We didn't have a Ferrando for the program. I should have called Toby. Um, but we brought in a guest artist. Out know, the man. game. I'm out. Oh, you're not. You're not. But um, we met him at Chautauqua Opera two summers ago. He just finished his master's at CCM. And he, uh, he, like many people in the business, didn't have any things coming up this fall. And I said, I think Ferrando would be a great role for you. Why don't you come work with us? And um, God bless him, he did. So, so uh, in addition to your work as an educator and, and, and your passion for it, you also are possibly the most prolific go-to baritone for new works. Can you, can you tell me, tell us a little bit about how you got started down that pathway and, well, and what it's like to be like a world premiere singer? Well, first of all, yeah, thanks, Matthew. I, um, I, new music found me in all honesty. Uh, um, my first world premiere was um, Houston Grand Opera, was uh, Michael Dougherty, uh, his Jackie O. And they actually, I, brought, I did my two years in the training program at Houston Grand Opera. And um, the second world premiere there uh, happened to be one that had a few legs over the years and that was uh, creating Little Women, Marco mm -hmm. uh, piece that was written for the, for the opera studio. It was premiered by the opera studio and then was brought back two years and was filmed. It was actually the first filming of an opera in HD. Um, huh. That great performance is the first HD and we recorded it. And from there, that- can, anyway, I, can I share a funny story about this, Danny? Oh, dear God. <laughs> oh, well, it's not about your performance. Well, it is kind of about your performance, actually. <laughs> Those are uh, the approximation notes. Boy, there was some approximations. Anyway, the, I, when I did Little Women, and this is Danny and I have been friends now a decade, 
since since this happened because I had known Kathleen, your wife, we were doing cozy, and I got cast as Lori in Little Women, and you were like, "Here, use my original score," and so that was like the biggest thrill ever. Is like you let me use your original Mark Adamo like etched in score, and I was like, "Oh my god, I am on the shoulders of giants." Anyway, continue with your answer. Thanks for letting me think. Shoulders of giants. Um, and you know what? You mentioned that Toby and. I actually hadn't spent much time in the score in a while. And I, uh, IU, Indiana is doing uh, Little Women this fall. But it's, it's they're, what they're doing with Barbara Seville and that is that it will, there'll be no audience. It will be streamed and they have to perform in masks. It will be staged in masks. Um, but uh, I worked with a baritone who's singing John Brooke and um, we worked on it and I had to tell him, you know, the, the urban legend of the B flat. But anyway, with, um, with new music it's one, not an urban legend it's a real thing <laughs> <laughs> one kind of spilled into the next and uh it's really become my true passion and uh the Edward Tulane was going to be my 18th world premiere um in about 23 years of doing them so the nice thing was I, I had one almost every year and where it's changed the most is kind of in the whole workshop uh incubation period where these pieces get to live and and be questioned and worked through and analyzed so that by the time it gets to the rehearsal process and within the theater, so much has been invested in the development of this, the dramaturgy, the uh, revisions, not only in the music, but within the libretti. And um, a lot of my work in new works comes from a handful of librettists, interestingly enough. And particularly um, Mark Campbell and Royce Fabric have, uh, they just keep throwing things at me and introducing me to to new composers. And then I kind of put it out there. So like if David T um, is listening, I, um, I keep saying, okay, David, I want to do something here. And he's like, well, we got to make that happen. But um, it's a really exciting time, even right now for new music. Uh, and I think companies, uh, are, if anything, dare I say, is they're move, looking forward, they're being more risky in the contemporary repertoire than kind of within the standard. And it's this is what's gonna be really interesting to see how all things settle in the next year and yeah. where go industry-wide. And one other thing that really stands out to me is in a world that's kind of pivoted away from studio recordings, you have quite an extensive discography in part because of how many new works you record. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what is that process like compared to preparing for a live performance and and how does it affect your your live performances from the experiences that you've had making these studio recordings? Yeah, um, in all honesty, I've only two of the ones that I've done were studio. Most of them are live recordings that are recorded in live performance and then they do it over three or four performances and then they, they kind of edit via that. Uh, the one that... Uh, the work of Kaya Sariajos, um, L'Amour de Loire, and then a, a chamber piece she wrote for me and a, and a flutist, Camilla Hoytenga. Um, those were really extensive studio times. And so I never really, until we did L'Amour de Loire, I never really spent that much time in a studio. And we recorded over four, it was four days, six hours a day at the Harmonious Moody Studios. And um, that kind of process was really intimidating, slightly terrifying, and at the same time, quite wonderful. I was completely removed from orchestra, chorus. I literally had headphones on, it was in the sound booth, and 
so you'd I have the engineer on my right ear, I'd have Kent Nagano on my left ear, and then Kaya would chime in. And to to be doing huge scenes and not be with any of the people I'm singing with um, was rather daunting. And Toby, I don't know if you ever knew this. When we did L'Amour de Loin, we did not, the soprano did not record. Um, I've never even met the soprano that I sang a duet in a trio with. She was recorded two years later. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, I did not know that. That's oh, wild. wild. Yeah, we. And then I, I was hoping when we went when it was nominated for a Grammy Award that I would meet her there. And then we won. And Kathleen and I, we were at the awards, and she's like, "Is anybody else here?" And I said. I have no idea. And I was the only one there. And so I've still never met the soprano that. <laughs> well, you guys uh, want a Grammy together. So who cares? <laughs> and we're literally in these, I, it, this is the astonishing thing and that we were able to do this. And we, so we recorded in 06 and then she was put down in 08 and it was released in 10. But every, most of the others, um, Matthew, were, were recordings of live performances. So in that aspect, you don't have as much control. You don't yeah. have a chance to to correct and and buff and polish it's it, but i there's such a thrill in my performance I, and i always tell singers that i work with i'm like try and find record, recordings of live performances that might be slightly imperfect and you know that that ah vowel on that pitch may just not be quite what it is but it's it's kind of recording a, a moment in time right yeah snapshot of the moment and so i i love being able to do the the recordings of live stuff so Danny, uh, as this is a, uh, a talk radio show about opera in a sports radio format, uh, it's time for me to ask you one of the more important questions of this interview, haha. When is the last time you actually watched sports? Um, it would actually be yesterday. I watched a little bit of a Royals game, which um, the okay. Royals are pretty, are pretty not good right now. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't going to say it, but uh, yeah, yeah. for it. The Two years that we were out of Kansas City, I was on faculty at Florida State for two years, were the two years they won the World Series. And so I think it's, I put it all on me because I'm that sports fan that if I don't wear the jersey, then they win. The day I wear the jersey, the, the Chiefs lose. You know, that's my psyche. And Danny so, and I are both Chiefs fans, just so everybody knows. Yeah. We know, Toby. We know. And again, last year when they won the Super Bowl, where was I? Not in Kansas City. So, so, uh, Danny, how many weeks is the NFL season going to go before it all collapses in on itself? Oh, there, there is the question for, oh, Ashley thinks four. Oh, Matthew <laughs> thinks three. Mm, I think that's rather optimistic. <laughs> Even that, yeah. Um, or or we're, we're fielding, it's like eight-man football. Um, we're going to be like rural America with eight man again. Exactly. It's going to be like the pre-Walter camp where there's no forward pass. <laughs> Danny Belcher is a baritone and a distinguished faculty artist with a BS from William Jewell College where he now teaches DanielBelcherBaritone.com. And of course, Jewell.edu. Danny, such a thrill to hang out with you, even from a distance on the show tonight. Likewise, guys, thank you for what you do. Um, and thank you for keeping what we do alive. Uh, I don't say that lightly. It actually, I, I get kind of emotional about it. Um, it's really important. Yeah, we're trying, man. We yeah. appreciate that very much. Uh, Toby Wright, you're a waste of space. We still love you. <laughs> love, love you, guys. Thanks for joining us tonight. 
Thank you all. And as they head toward the break, you'll hear a little bit of Daniel Belcher singing in Mark Adamo's opera, Little Women. This recorded at Houston Grand Opera, conducted by Patrick Summers. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Attention all brilliant operatic content creators. Catapult Opera is holding a competition to recognize and incentivize artists in the operatic community who are innovating in the digital space. Self-organized teams of singers, pianists, and directors should submit a written proposal for an innovative video presentation of one of four selected scenes. Choose from Nadia Boulanger's La Ville Morte, Erilyn Wallen's The Silent Twins, David Hertzberg's The Wake World, or Toshio Hosokawa's Hanjo. Four teams will be selected to compete. Each of the teams will receive $1,000 and have three weeks to complete their final presentation. Presentations will be reviewed by an adjudication panel and posted online for an audience vote. Cash prizes will be awarded to the winning teams. This is an ideas competition, not a technology competition. It is free to apply and open to anyone interested, regardless of age or national affiliation. If the repertoire doesn't immediately seem to fit your creative team, feel free to devise a solution and apply. Application and competition materials are all available at catapultopera.org. Submit your proposal by September 6th. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Columbia Artist Management, a.k.a. CAMI, is shutting down. In a statement emailed to its artists over the weekend, the agency said it's closing its doors and, quote, We are working tirelessly to provide each of you with concrete guidance on your specific situation in the coming days. In addition, we're working together with the fiduciary to see a safe place to land for Columbia Artist's relationship. Cami represents some of the biggest names in the world of the classical music and opera, including friends of the show Brenda Ray and Russell Thomas. The opera world is shook. 
New York Philharmonic is taking the show on the road, literally. Friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo, wanted to find a way for the New York Phil to perform safely after a five-month hiatus. So the Philharmonic bandwagon was born. Over the next seven weeks, the bandwagon, a 22-foot pickup truck tricked out with vinyl and neon lights, will present a rotating roster of NY Phil musicians to different communities throughout New York City. That reminds me of a school bus I once saw on the Lower East Side. <laughs> Soprano Julia Bullock has been named Artist in Residence at Guildhall School. Known for her focus on social consciousness, Bullock is celebrated as an innovative programmer whose artistic curation is in high demand. Of the appointment, Bullock says, quote, I'm becoming more convinced that one's development in the studies of classical art must be grounded in a perpetual state of learning, not performance. We all seek to find greater clarity in what we create, the services we provide, and further identify why artists seek to put themselves in this perpetually unique position to provoke, challenge, and question. Ms. Bullock, we admire you so much. Please come on our show. Cecilia Bartoli has signed on for six more years as artistic director of the Salzburg Whitson Festival, taking her through to 2026. Quote, I'm delighted to extend our inspiring collaboration with Marcus Hinterhäuser for another five years, she said. She's still going to wear that beard. I hope so. The Republican <laughs> National Convention, the first political convention ever held at the White House, ended with the most predictable anthem from Italian opera. Accompanied by piano and a chorus of two, tenor Christopher Macchio had the dubious honor of singing Nessun Dorma from the Blue Room balcony while fireworks exploded over the Capitol and protesters raised signs with the current COVID death toll. The Deutsches Nationaltheater Weimar has announced that Andrea Moses will take over the helm as the new opera director. All 62 members of the chorus of the Opera of the National Theater in Prague have been quarantined after several members tested positive for COVID-19. The company plans to move forward with its scheduled productions of Yennefer and Rosalka in, quote, slightly modified versions, end quote. Data from Australia's National Arts Participation Survey released last week highlights the vital and growing role played by the arts and culture in the lives of Australians, as the industries themselves face more challenges than ever. The survey shows a significant rise in both the number of Australians who believe in the positive impact of the arts and the number who support it being publicly funded. The latest COVID rules on the Wiener Staatsoper website require opera goers not to shout bravo after a thrilling RAF for fear of spreading virus-bearing aerosols. Quote, as difficult as it is, refrain from shouts of bravo, says the instructions. Just clap louder, it advises, and do not remove your mask. Exit stage right, the Romanian lyric coloratura soprano Constantia Adriana Mestesh has been found dead in her apartment after several days of not being seen. Born on April 7, 1956 in Timoshoara, she became a soloist of the national opera in Isai, eventually winning recognition in the Bulgarian capital, Sofia. And on this day, August 31st, in 1829, it was the premiere of Rossini's William Tell in Paris. The composer of La Gioconda, Amilcare Ponchielli, was born in 1834 in Paderno, Fasolaro, near Cremona. In 1879, Austrian composer Alma Margareta Maria Schindler, better known as Alma Mahler, was born in Vienna. The baritone, then dramatic tenor Ramon Vinay, celebrated for his portrayal of Verdi's Otello, was born in Chillán, Chile on this day in 1912. And in 1928, its first premiere of Kurt Weill's Three Penny Opera in Berlin. And in the year 2000.
2000. In the year 2000, Philip Glass's opera in the Penal Company. Yeah, I was so ready for it. Anyway, Philip Glass's opera in the Penal Colony premiered in Seattle. That's your two-minute drill. That's probably about as much of that as I think I can take. Yeah, I didn't want to search for that video because I, I thought that, that it would send all my algorithms into a tizzy. The video, of course, is Christopher Macchio singing Nessun Dorma from Puccini's Turandot. I didn't know the White House had a blue room, by the way. Oh, it's got lots of rooms. Yeah, and you're not supposed to be seeing any of them on a political convention because of this little thing called the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act, the whole week was a violation of federal law. The Hatch well, Act, it's more like the Hack Act. Who, who does this guy think he is? Well, they had to go, they had to figure something else out after four years ago when Pucci, uh, not Puccini's widow, Pavarotti's widow asked them to stop playing recordings of him singing Nessun Dorma at the rallies. I, I, I mean, I understand why you choose that aria because it has latent racism no because it's about winning i get that when you watch the collected first family there it's it's this bizarre clash of like the philistine uber elite and the nouveau riche it's it's sort of strange well, you can throw in a little bit the fact that opera and pop culture these days is almost always played when a serial killer is on screen. So we're really not that far afield. It's a pretty good two-minute drill this week, all things considered. I don't quite know where to start first. I guess at the top, Columbia Artists Management, Cami shutting down, closing its doors yeah. with a sort I... of set piece, uh, not even apology, but just sort of trying to make take the next steps here for some of these huge artists who knows how this is gonna play out it takes a lot to shock people nowadays but like i was genuinely surprised i gasped when i saw this headline that they were such a stalwart of the musical community it's like i don't know 15 years ago when tower records closed or like it's it's hearing that one of the one of the heaviest hitters if not the heaviest hitter is just gone yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I, I've been doing a little bit of uh, behind the scenes work with some of my sources, some of which are um, artists that were represented by Cami, um, and the, the sort of word on the street has been that uh, the original plan was for this announcement to come out today on the day that things were supposed to be done, uh, because they had, they had artists on stage uh, overseas in Europe. And they didn't want people finding out about this like as they were going on stage or right before they went on stage. Um, but as we know, in this world, leaks happen. And so they ended up having to send the message out to their artists sooner than they would have liked. Um, and it's, yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about this because yes, you're right, Matthew, it's incredibly shocking um, considering this is one of the big dogs. I mean, the, the singers of A Houses right now 
you know, a quarter to a third of them are, are represented by this huge, huge uh, organization that is that is now no more. And and it's it's so sad. Like you go to the Cami website now, you you don't know who any of their artists were because all of that stuff is gone. And now there's just a black screen with white text. There are a couple of typos, but I'm sure this was put up very quickly and with a lot of emotion. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, actually, I have a question for you guys. Um, you know, we've had we've had this representation of these really big firms that have you know. 40 to 60 singers and 25 conductors and a couple of stage directors. Do either of you think that this, this sort of going down of the big firms is going to allow when the dust settles and hopefully when we get back to something that has a little more of a semblance of a public performance career, is, is this going to be the new era of boutique firms popping up? Well, you look, everything else in our lives is hyper-local now, right? We've got hyper-local brewing. We've got hyper-local food. I've always believed that our art and our opera should be hyper-local. I see no reason why, if we're starting to move away from a global traveling set of artists, that our agencies can't also be hyper-local as well. You know that all the boutique agents are going to be hustling over the next couple of weeks. Because they got, they've got some opportunities that maybe just fell right into their laps. It's it's still so surprising to me because when I think of like the big leagues when it comes to artist representation, especially when I was coming up as a singer, and you know my my fellow artists that are currently singing in a houses, you know the the goal was to be a cami artist. The goal like that meant that you had employment security. That meant you had a career. That meant you had made it. And now it is kind of one of the first big guys to fall. It's just, it's, it's a very surreal, it's been a very surreal weekend for, for my musician folks. Despite the uh, white text on a black background, the link to employment opportunities on the website still works, but oddly there's no available positions. New York Phil, of course, heading on the road. Uh, this looks like a ton of fun. I think the New Yorkers are in for a lot of fun there as well. We've talked, of course, about this clown singing at the RNC. Surely um, Riri Pagliacci would have been a equally good choice as well. It's maybe a little on the nose. I, I, I don't know if the RNC is known for their sense of humor, George. I mean, okay. my, really, my really bad joke about this, uh, you know, yes, we've used Nessun Dorma a couple of times, but my joke for this was, did anybody else appreciate the notion of Nessun Dorma, none shall sleep at the RNC? Because if there are four more years of this administration, I sure as hell am not sleeping. But I'm if you're at the Wiener Staatsoper, first of all, bully for you if you're one of the 100 people that's managed to afford and get a ticket in there. So how are you gonna how are you gonna show that appreciation? Normal bravos. You're just gonna clap louder. Like at some point, your hands bleed, right? I mean the the Wiener the Viennese State Opera is really lucky that they have an audience base that is devout rule followers. I mean, you can't even jaywalk across the street from the Vienna Staatsoper. They will look at you like you have two heads. <laughs> it doesn't matter if there are no cars coming. You still wait for that green light. It's like that Japanese roller coaster uh, guideline that was like scream inside your heart. It's the same thing. It's yell bravo inside your heart. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out how if all 62 members of the National Theater in Prague are now in quarantine, that the company is going to do Yenifa and Ruzalka. They talk about, quote, slightly modified versions. 
Uh, what are the modifications? Maybe they're, maybe they're going to zoom the chorus in from their apartments in Prague. I will. They'll do. <laughs> On like a huge bank of television screens yeah. that occupies like the proscenium arch. Just a just a canned chorus. You know, it could be like the the Bacharach Orchestra uh, in musicals that by Burt Bacharach. They have pit singers. <laughs> so maybe they're like pit singers. They're just beaming them in from their homes. Promises, promises. That's a really good Burt Bacharach show. Best uh, I ever had. It was great. But here's the thing about these choristers being in quarantine and these modified versions, and I'm astounded by this every day in this country, in America, is that so many artists are lacking in creativity and they're lacking in ingenuity to create work within these new parameters. I don't see it being that difficult. Look, we have fetishized the unamplified voice for hundreds of years in this art form. The parameters are now different. We've fetishized groups, masses of supernumeraries and choristers. What if the parameters are now different? You see that in the work of someone like Danny Belcher, who is creating work and training in these bizarre, surreal times within new parameters. I want to see that American ingenuity and creativity to do something beneficial despite craziness of where we're living you know where we're gonna definitely gonna be seeing that american ingenuity and creativity soon is from soprano julia bullock because every time she opens her mouth i have to play it four times because everything she says is so just cuts right to the point of what so few others seem to grasp and that's just when she's speaking i mean i also listen to videos of her singing four times because she's an incredibly insightful and talented and powerful artist and Guildhall's lucky to have her. And also, we would be lucky to have her on the show. One more time, open invitation, Ms. Bullock. <laughs> All right, let's wrap this show up. Oh, no, wait. Let's not wrap it up. Sorry, I forgot about the on this day list. I, you know what? I got to take my hat off now because the sources that I used to put this together completely missed that it was the premiere of um, William Tell. More importantly, the Philip Glass Opera in the Penal Colony, I directed this a few years ago. It is such a great piece. Two singers, two actors, 80 minutes, string quintet. It's one of the most harrowing, intense pieces of music you'll ever experience. And I, here, I thought you were about to call it my flawless Romanian accent. <laughs> I have been meaning to tell you, Matthew. That was excellent. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, let's wrap this show up. Danny Belcher on the show, Toby Wright on the show. Back from the dead. Matt I Cummings and brother. Ashley Hardgrave as well. Oliver had a good call, which uh, I'm going to yeah. pass over to Ashley. Absolutely. I will do this for our dear friend Oliver. Uh, next Saturday, September the 12th, WFMT Radio Network will broadcast Wagner's Low and Grin from Opera Southwest. The cast includes Corey Fix in the title role, Michelle Johnson as Elsa, Sean Anderson as Tal Ramond, Claudia Chapa as Ortud, uh, and Harold Wilson as King Henry. It's conducted by friend of the show, Anthony Brazing. That is September 12th at 12 p.m. Central, and you're, you're here, good friend of the show slash host, Oliver Camacho, on the back announce if you can make it through the whole opera. Matt Cummings. Uh, if you get a chance to check out some non-local opera, sorry, George, uh, you definitely shouldn't miss 
the Porgy and Bess that is going to be rebroadcast from the Met through their live streams. Uh, they're broadcasting it twice this week, once on September 4th and once on September 5th. The cast is incredible. You've got Angel Blue, you've got Lichaponia Moore, you've got Eric Owens. I just was listening to part of this a couple of weeks ago, and it is stunning. It is such a good production. Do not miss it. That is swell. Latonia Moore, I worked on a production of Aida with her in Pittsburgh. She is phenomenal. And actually, that uh, production of Lohengrin that Bereze is conducting, it is such a great opera. When I get to doing the Wagner rep, I think Lohengrin is going to be the first one that I tackle. The music is phenomenal. The story is phenomenal as well. Excited to see what opera Southwest has for that. Good call, bad call for me. So my family, we have a theme every summer for the types of movies that we watch. This summer's theme has been movie musicals. And can I say, the live action film of Beauty and the Beast with Emma Watson in the title role of Belle of of the Beauty, it's really good. Aw, yay. Audrey McDonald doesn't make mistakes. I mean, you knew it from from the moment her name came on the screen. I've been singing Be Our Guest all week. You know, it's funny. Uh, this this has a theme. It's been running through your brain. It's been running through mine. I was having dinner with a good friend last night. Uh, he's a classical musician. And we do this thing where we just, we get on music kicks and he just throws things onto his Spotify. And we had a really rousing rendition of the original Beauty and the Beast song with Celine. And is it... It's, it's, is it Peebo Bryson or is it someone else? I can't remember. It is, it is Peebo Bryson. Yeah, yeah. So I had a holler and screlty belt fest last night with Celine and Peebo. Oh my God. So that, that recording is, that recording is iconic for no other reason than the fact that you can tell she has no idea what the words that she's saying mean. She, (laughs) it's Celine, who cares? Exactly. It's, it's fantastic. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com. N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter and Instagram. We're Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, as well as our guests, Danny Belcher and Tobias Wright, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera at your own national convention. We're back with the best of the OBS, our Labor Day break show next Wednesday, September 9th, and Opera Wire coming up as well. Those two gentles on the show on September 16th. In the meantime, more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more music. Join us 